Hello, and welcome to the first Angus Alive Cultural Team podcast. With the current situation, all of our facilities are currently closed, so we are bringing our collections to your home and lifting the veil on what goes on behind the scenes to run our museums, galleries, archives and libraries. And of course, how we manage our collection. In this first episode, we will be discussing Pictish stones and how modern technology is reinventing the way we connect with this form of historic art. James, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Um, so my name is Adeline. I'm the cultural team lead for Angus Alive. And I'm James Whaley. I am the curatorial assistant for Angus Alive. Okay. What does a curatorial assistant do, James, for those who are listening? So <laughs> to put it in one sentence, I deal with uh, and assist with all matters curatorial. But that involves the planning and the execution of our programming in our museums, in our art galleries across the county of Angus. Okay. And what, what does your day normally comprise of? So my day would normally comprise of I will be writing interpretation for exhibitions. I will be researching objects to put into exhibitions. It's a lot of a lot of planning towards exhibitions, essentially. So yeah, I don't uh, think you yeah. appreciate how much planning actually it's, goes into putting on an exhibition. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of reading, uh, a lot of reading involved, and yeah. A lot of writing, many redrafts. <laughs> okay. Um, and what considerations do you have to think about when you're when you're planning an or uh, an exhibition like that? So the main thing I try and concentrate on when I'm putting on an, uh, an exhibition, and I think it should be, you know, important in all museums, is the accessibility of what you're writing. So I mean, I. I used to be really bad for writing really big, long, wordy sentences, but my grammar was absolutely terrible. But for this, it's going down to refining what I'm saying, you know, keeping the sentences short and actually just, you know, putting across the most important information rather than just trying to cram everything in. Yeah, so a lot of editing. Yes. Editing your <laughs> Many thought hours post. editing. <laughs> Okay, um, and today we're going to talk about um, Pictish Stones and the work that you're doing with our Pictish Stones, because we have quite a, a large collection in Angus, in our museums. Yes, yes we do. Yeah. Do you know how many stones we have? So, well, this was my last count anyway, because I was just making a mental note in my head. We do have around about 25 or so Pictish stones or fragments of Pictish stones in the collection. Give or take, it might be a bit more than that or a bit less, but it's certainly, yeah, I would say it's more than 25. Okay, because I, I was thinking 25, but not all of them are on display, obviously. Um, no. We have five museums that um, we um we operate in Angus Alive, and of those five museums, only one of them does not have a Pictish stone. Mm -hmm. Which one is that? And that one will be Signal Tower in our Broth. It doesn't have a Pictish stone on display, but it does have one in storage. And that's it because does, the stone... Yeah, that's because, because the stone is big, <laughs> so there's no way to actually display it currently. And that's the uh, Farnell stone. 
And the, the other thing with it is, is because it's sandstone, we can't leave it outside because it will get destroyed. Exactly. I would just agree with the elements and especially with the salty air that you get at the, the waterfront in our broth. It's not the ideal conditions. No, it's not. Um, the, the signal tower doesn't have one on display, I should explain, because the signal tower is more telling the story of the Bell Rock Lighthouse, which is 11 miles out to sea, so not accessible mm. to the public. So the signal tower works as an interpretive centre for there, um, which explains why it doesn't have a Pictish stone on display. But um, mm -hmm. it, with regards to Pictish stones, I don't think people realize that a lot of the stones they are seeing outside and in front of churches or other buildings are actually replicas of the original stone. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, one of the first ones that come to mind in my head, in fact, is there's a replica of stone at Dinican Church. Uh, we've actually got the, the real Dinican stone on display in the Meth Museum, uh, it's kindly on loan from Dundee Lesher and Culture. But yeah, there's a replica one uh, in the churchyard there, which is worth seeing. And even if you go and visit it, you can see how quickly moss and lichen will grow in a stone over time and actually slowly degrade the sandstone. For our listeners at home, who are the Picts? So we're talking about Pictish stones, but who were the Picts? So the Picts uh, themselves, they were uh, an ancient people, the inhabitants of northern and eastern Scotland. Uh, the name Pict actually comes, well, we reckon it comes from the Latin Pictus, which means painted. And that's, uh, we, and that's possibly because they, they, they tattooed themselves. Uh, but it also could be a name of what they actually refer to themselves also. And they spoke a language which is now extinct, uh, but we reckon it was probably related to an early form of Welsh. Okay. I did not know that. Every day is a school mm. day. I didn't know that. I would have assumed <laughs> it would be Nordic or um, closer to Irish. Yeah, well, in fact, uh, funny you mentioned Irish because the neighbouring kingdom of Dalriata, which was on the west coast, uh, they were Gaelic speakers and they actually originally came from Ireland. And what you'll find is around about by the 11th century, both Dalriata and the Picts actually uh, sort of united into one culture, uh, which the Gaelic uh, culture became the prominent one and actually pushed, almost like pushed out Pictish culture. And that's uh, written records of them at all. Oh, that's a shame. So because we don't have these written records, that brings the Pictish stones into clearer focus because they become more important mm -hmm. in understanding what that culture was like. So yeah. there are quite, in Scotland, there are quite a lot of Pictish stones, but um, there's three different classes of them. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to Pictish stones, uh, we reckon there's, uh, there is over 100 Pictish stones in Scotland and they're divided into three classes. Uh, I'll quickly run through these classes uh, if you want. Yeah, go on, do it. It'd be an yeah, education yeah. for me as well. I understand <laughs> class one and two, but class mm. three, I always forget. I always forget it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's because, well, you've got class one, which is your earliest examples of Pictish stones. And these stones were sort of like uh, the sim 
you had these sort of strange symbols etched into them, but the stone itself was unworked. So it could be like a, you know, like an old standing stone from, say, you know, like a stone circle that's been used uh, possibly from earlier times. Uh, So you think a lot of pagan belief is sort of carried over. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Dinican stone, that's one example of a class one stone. Uh, Class two stones, they are, they tend to be worked into. Uh, They're usually cut to a rectangular shape. They'll have a cross on one side or sometimes even both sides. And there'll be a lot of uh, Christian motifs and uh, yeah, sometimes a lot of you know Christian symbolism in them, and uh, you'll find that we've got some good examples of that in our own collections, which is the Kirimur sculptured stones, uh, which were oh, found yeah, the in the churchyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we'll be getting onto the Kirimur stones later because they're yeah. fascinating in themselves. But even that in itself, the difference between class one and class two tells us a lot because. We can see the transition to Catholicism within the Picts. Yes, yes, certainly. Uh, you can see, you know, you can almost uh, put it in a rough uh, time scale as well with these stones. Like class one stones tend to be from the, the sixth and the seventh century or even earlier. And then your class two are from like the seventh century all the way through to the ninth century as well. Uh, yeah, because I, I think a lot of people think of the Picts as being almost cavemen because of the, the their tattoos. And we know mm-hmm. that they had tattoos from bog bodies and from other bodies that we've discovered up there, um, mm-hmm. other mummified remains. So I think people think that they were very primitive, but they aren't. They weren't actually. They were. There was a crossover with Catholicism there. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot. You know, they did have, uh, you know, what you could describe as high culture. Just because we've got no remnants of any written records doesn't mean they were, you know, like a barbarian breed or anything like that. Um, it's just uh, the fact that we have no written records that we think of them as being this whole oh, mysterious people, you know, who, you know, they got lost in their ways and such. But yeah, you can see yeah. the transition. And even in, in Glam's, uh, which is an Angus, you know, you've got that's actually the sort of the point of a Pictish uh, saint called St. Fergus in uh, his wells there and that was uh, being identified as an old pre-christian site which has then had really? a church built on top of it yeah amazing so we we can learn a lot about our ancestors from there because as you said that scott well not me because i'm irish but scottish people <laughs> you are descended from these people mm-hmm. yeah and uh you know we descended from uh, these Picts, but also you've got, you know, a bit of the the Scots from Ireland thrown in there as well. You've got a bit of the uh, bit of the Norse from uh, Norway and Denmark. So yeah, it's a very very mi- mixed genetics of this neck of the woods. <laughs> Good strong yeah. genes. Yeah, which is which uh, leads me on to the in fact the class three stones because. Class three stones, they don't tend to have any uh, Pictish designs on them. They're from the Pictish period, but this seems to be a bit of a miscellaneous category. So it could be like grave markers or standing stones, a good example, or a, well, a standing cross, sorry. Good example of that's the Camus Cross, which is out by uh, Miniki. But also you've got these uh, recumbent grave markers, which you've got one, in fact, in Beacon Cathedral, and it's got Norse designs on it. And in fact, it's probably the most complicated uh, Norse Scandinavian art actually carved into stone in Scotland there. 
Wow. So, and of people... course, you can visit all of these as soon as the current crisis is over. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> They're all, uh, the Camden's Cross is out in the elements, uh, and then the Brecon Cathedral is still open as well, and you're free to walk in there and have a look at their stone collection. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's worth mentioning that all of our museums are free as well, so you can go and see our fabulous collection as well. Yeah. And I will, of course, be linking some of them in social, so check the links below. Um, so what work are you specifically doing with the Pictish stones? Because I find this fascinating. So the work I'm currently just pottering away with right now is I'm doing a bit of digitization. So Okay, and what does that involve? So digitization uh, in its simplest forms is basically you're making a digital copy of a physical original. So that could be as simple as scanning an old photograph or an old film reel. But the next step in that is actually creating a, a 3D digital model. And with a 3D digital model, you can manipulate it and look at different angles. And this is just the next level of recording uh, the objects we have in our collections. Oh, fantastic. And how... You were saying that there are two different types of recording them. How do you, how can you scan a stone? How do you make a 3D model? So the two most common ways to say scan a stone would be to use a, a laser scanner where it's almost like a, a handheld device which shoots out a laser. Uh, the laser bounces back off the object and then it's sort of able to tell the depth from where the object is and then it'll slowly sort of start building up a model of what you're you know shooting at with this laser uh, but the technique i use and uh, this one is because i would say it's a lot more cheaper is the the photogrammetry technique where you take uh, many many photographs of your object and then you process your photos you load them into software and the software is smart enough to then stitch together all these photographs into a 3D model itself. That's it's, it's so interesting. I just think it's really cool. And how many photos do you need to make it? Say I have an object, a bottle. How many photos of that bottle would I need to make a 3D scan of it? So, well, a bottle. Uh, the first thing I would actually consider. I'm assuming the, the stones are much bigger, so you would need more photos. Yeah. Or do you? Am I wrong? Uh, no, you're not actually you. You're not actually that wrong because depending on the size and the space you have to play around with around the uh, the object at hand, I would say if you were uh, scanning a bottle, uh, it would depend on the material it's made of. It was a glass bottle. You tend to find that it's harder for the uh, the program to actually recognise and stitch together photographs because the the objects. You know, it's translucent, it's see-through, uh, so that's why it oh, works. Wow. Yeah, so that's why it works really well with uh, stones because you're not getting a lot of reflection or anything like that. So that's why in the past I've tried to silver uh, silver badge or silver pistol, and it's uh, it's been quite difficult because I'm getting so much shine off of it. So you're getting different reflections, and yeah, the the program basically just looks at your photos and it's like, eh. So, <laughs> <laughs> so how do you work around that? So to work, or can you work around that? You can work around it, and it's the most time-consuming thing about actually processing the photographs, and it's a process called masking. 
And basically what you're doing with masking is you're looking at each and every individual photograph. And to get a good model, you're wanting a minimum of 30 photographs. But if you're wanting a really detailed one, probably around about 200. And you're going into these photographs wow. and then you're almost drawing around them and then highlighting a certain area. So only the program will only concentrate on what's inside this bordered area. But, you know, if you've got a really complicated shape, uh, for example, right now I'm actually working on uh, a set of witches' branks from Forfor, which is like a big long chain. I'm having to then draw around every single link in this chain. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> that time consuming. Mm -hmm. So, getting back to the stones, mm -hmm. so you're scanning our stones right now. How many photos do you need for our stones then? So, with the stones, I'm actually working with around about. Uh, well, my latest one was 190 photographs. Uh, and that was... Which stone was that for? That was for the Kirimir 2 stone. Uh, quite an interesting oh. stone, that one. That's my favourite one. I love that one. Yeah, it's. I just, I just think it's fantastic, you know, how it's got the, the two figures on horseback on one side, and on the other side, you've got, like, this other small hunting scene as well. And you've got this fellow, and he's got, like... It's either he's got like a, a net over his shoulder or he's either wearing like a really, really sort of like primitive plaid garment, you know? So it's got that interpretation there, depending on which way you look it's, at um, it. For, for our viewers, if you'd like to see images of the Kerry Muir 2 stone or the Kerry Muir 1 stone, I will have links in the description down below so you can see what we're talking about. But they, they are really, really beautiful stones. Mm -hmm, certainly. Uh, yeah. So how long will it take you to render them into a 3D model then? You've got 190 photos. So we had 190 photos and it all depends on the processing power of your computer. Uh, if you've got a really good graphics card, uh, it could take 190 photos and have a really high detail model in the space of like 20 minutes. But since I'm currently yeah. working with something that's got the processing power of a microwave, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it probably takes me around about a day and a half to two days. So yeah, big but jump. you've got a high quality product at the end of it. Exactly, and I can I can let the computer run in the background and get on with other things. So it's not exactly uh, you know taking a lot out of my day. Just the processing yeah. power. That's all. So what other things have you scanned? Not just within our collections, because I know you've scanned the the. The Pictish stones, but what other things are we looking to scan? Our collections, not only are we have, well, do we have the Pictish sculptured stones, we also have uh, a lot of other stonework within the collections that I'd like to scan, uh, but not even limited to stonework. We've also got uh, the likes of, we've got small archaeological finds like uh, a bust of Minerva, which I've actually scanned. Uh, we have the, the door lintel. Minerva. So Minerva was uh, a Roman goddess and this small bust was found in a, in a Roman fort uh, in Angus just beside Early. And Minerva was the Roman goddess of, of many, many different things uh, from the likes of feasting all the way through to, I think, horses as well, I would like to say. Yeah, but yeah, she was a very sort of multifaceted goddess. Yeah, and um, what about the door lintel that you're scanning? So yeah, the door lintel, it's 
from Brecon and it was originally from the home and workshop of uh, James McKenzie. He was a pistol maker in Brecon and what's really interesting about this door lintel is it's actually got two carved pistols in it and a musket and this door lintel was then removed after the building was demolished. It was then moved to another building which became a pub called, I think it was called something like the, the Cross Pistols, but then it was demolished and now the stone is now in our collections and it's just sitting there, which is a shame because I'd really like to bring it out to the public. But in the meantime, I've got this 3D scan I can show everyone. Yeah, it's it's amazing the detail people put into their shops back in the day because I I don't think people appreciate that literacy wasn't wasn't enormous at the time. Literacy levels were quite low, so it was really important that you had these symbols in front of your shop, like two guns. Yeah, ah, that's what he made. Definitely, it there. and uh, I think it's I just even for that uh, sort of that notion of identity as well. And that's why you'll find it on a lot of uh, gravestones. You'll find the, the the tools of the trade that they worked with have been carved into the stones. Yeah. It, well, it was very important what what you did and who mm -hmm. you were. It was the same thing. It was the same thing, and that ties in with our Pictish stones because we don't have our writings from the Picts, so their stones become even more yeah, important. Yeah, yeah, because it's a it's our only because... way of interpreting the. The pets, really. Yeah, but in saying that, Kerry Muir mm -hmm. 2 does have some writing on it. It has, on the bottom right-hand corner, we have discovered it has some very, very faint ogum. Ogum, yeah. sorry. Ogum, um, yeah. Which is very... Yeah, it's a it's an early medieval, I think, form of writing from mm -hmm. Ireland, but there's not very many cases of it in Scotland so that makes our our stone even more important and I have set you a challenge to 3d scan the Ogham. well that's is that going to be a challenge? that's challenge accepted yeah uh, that won't be a that won't be difficulty at all I mean I have scanned the entire stone but I home in on that one little area so we can actually get a really highly detailed scan and so we can recognize all the little grooves and indentations. And then using that 3D scan, we can then uh, take away the texture so we can then purely just see the shape. And from that, hopefully, we'll be able to get a translation from it, which is quite exciting because, well, it's yeah, our only connection with the Pictish language, really. It is. And um, we don't, we haven't had it translated yet. It's very difficult to find people who can translate it. So having a 3D scan and being able to make that globally available is uh, yeah. essential in our efforts to get it Certainly. translated. But, um, and it is quite, quite faint as well. Would you need a special camera to do that? I mean, that? I, I would say I need a special camera. Uh, the photographs and videos I've been taken so far are just being used with a, a GoPro or my mobile phone camera. But even just your basic sort of like DSLR camera, if you take some really high quality shots, uh, you'll get a really, really, really detailed model just with them. So you don't need any specialist equipment. It's uh, it's quite democratic. Yeah. No, yeah, anyone can be uh, there. That anyone can make their own museum. Yeah, definitely.
uh, especially if if they have well, you know, if they've got a camera at home and you know there's a lot of the, the free software online you can get this done so yeah you can be your very own build your own little museum at home if you wanted to yeah and what are the applications of making 3d models of it so um what will we do with these 3d models when you're finished so the 3d models what you can do with them is the most the simplest way forward is it's just a really high level of documentation. So you can then uh, put these uh, models into your own uh, collections database. So when you're referring to photo, well, a photograph, you'll have a scan instead, which is highly detailed. But there's many other different approaches. You can actually use it in exhibition interpretation. So, you know, if you had uh, an AV sort of a screen setup, you could actually then manipulate it to look at the object from different angles. Uh, or you can also upload them to Sketchfab as well. So you can allow the, uh, our audiences to then go and freely download uh, the objects that we have yeah. in our collections. And uh, if they had a printer at home, they could also print one off if they'd like. So there's lots of different things yeah. that can be done. Uh, and it's really exciting. Breaking down the Sorry. And I was just saying it was really exciting as well because, you know, it sort of breaks down the barriers between what's in museum collections and the public because, you know, it democratizes museum collections and makes them more accessible than ever before. Exactly. It's making a, a you don't have to be in a physical place to really appreciate the object. Exactly. Yeah, and of course, uh, my my big thing about the Pictish stones um, being scanned is that we're hoping to make replicas of them so that um, children can make rubbings yeah. of uh, the our Pictish stones. They can take a little bit of the art home with them because obviously we don't encourage people to <laughs> to rub on Pictish stones. They're very delicate. They're made of sandstone, mm -hmm. so they're and that flakes. they're very delicate. Yeah. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that uh, we're scanning them as well, because since it's sandstone, naturally it will degrade over time and flake off. So you're like a snapshot of these objects in time. So future generations can then look back and see what this object looked like in its prime as such. Yeah, and we can also track through research, we can, we can track how sandstone is degraded over time as well. So there's scientific applications of mm -hmm. it too. Yeah, definitely. Well, so the next stage for me is uh, getting back into the museums at some point. <laughs> but I mean, uh, for the time <laughs> being, it's just working with the, the photographs I have. So I've got like uh, another three stones, which I'm going to process through. But my intention over time is to make sure the entire collection is scanned. Uh, give or take, if I'm doing it on and off, it could maybe take around about, you know, uh, a year, I would I would say. But, you know, if I was to do an intensive session at it, you know, it could be done within six months, but there's plenty of other things to be getting on with as well. So, <laughs> yeah, there is. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to stage an exhibition and also to take care of these objects as well. So. Yeah, definitely. You are a very busy boy. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I have my fingers in, in many pies. <laughs> <laughs> um, last week on our social media, we asked a question um, to the public, ask us anything. And we had a response from Mariana Key 11Y. Mm -hmm. And she wants, 
she wanted to know what our favorite object in our collection was. So do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. My favorite object in the collection is, in fact, and I've just briefly mentioned it before, it's actually a steel flintlock pistol that we have from Brecon. And it was uh, constructed by a guy named James McKenzie. And we've actually got his uh, door lintel as well within the collections. Uh, but what really attracts me to it is it's such a, a beautiful, it's a, a really sort of simple piece of craft, uh, but also represents and shows that the best crafts in Scotland uh, being produced were actually originating in all these wee small towns dotting the countryside and not necessarily your larger urban centres, you know? So it just shows you how much yeah, local it, talent it there is. Well, Montrose was a very important port back in the day. Oh, yeah, well. yes, yeah, certainly, especially for uh, the likes of clock making, all these specialist crafts uh, in these small towns. Yeah, we have some really beautiful clocks in our collection, actually, that came from Montrose. Mm -hmm. And what about yourself, Adeline? What's your favourite yeah. uh, object in the collection? So, I, I don't have a favorite object. I have a favorite section of the collection, <laughs> which is um, it's cheating slightly. But mine is our embroidery collection. We have a world-class, fabulous embroidery mm, collection, yeah. and I love everything about it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm not going to get into it here because it really deserves a podcast all on its own. But um, should anyone listening like to view uh, a small sample of our embroidery collection, it is on display in our Broth Library. So you can go in there and see uh, a segment of it, but it is by no means the entire collection. Definitely. Yeah. Um, we have asked our colleagues as well to um, share theirs as well, so you can listen to some of their answers now. My name's Caroline Taylor, and I'm the Heritage Learning and Engagement Lead for Angus Alive Museum, Galleries and Archives. So my favourite object is the gravestone of William Wood, which was found in Meryton Churchyard. It dates from around 1540 and has carvings of a baron in 16th century costume and a shield bearing the coat of arms of the Wood family, um, which is an oak tree on a mount between two crosses. I like gravestones generally because you can find out so much about someone from what they carve on their gravestone, uh, what they think is important. So for William Wood, it was his status and his family name that was obviously most important to him, that he wanted everyone to know even after he died. And I just think graveyards in general just give you such a fascinating glimpse into society. My name is Rachel Jackson. I'm the museum's exhibition lead with Angus Alive. One of my favourite objects is the Glasshall Hoard, a collection of 47 coins from the 13th century, found near Kirimuir in 2012. It's one of my favourite objects, or collection of objects, as it was one of the first exhibitions I did, and I have a great memory of being interviewed on Radio Scotland, which was a bit scary. And if you'd like to hear from James again, put a comment down below, we'd love to hear from you. Okay, and I will talk to you Bye. soon. Bye, I'll see you later. If you would like to see some of the objects that we've been talking about today or keep up to date with us during the current crisis, please follow us on social media or visit our website at angusalive.scot. All of the applicable links are in the description down below.
And if you have any suggestions for other podcasts or have a question about anything we have discussed today, please leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, be healthy, be active and be creative.